Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with a collection of things we thought you might like to hear. And this time we're swimming with the water beings and the anthropologist who studies the slippery creatures across time and cultures. Jennifer Walsh is here with her latest on the sincerity or otherwise of ChatGTP and we vibe into deep space in the music of jazz composer Milena Gillard. But first... Everyone's got one from the Central African Mammy Water to the Australian Aboriginal Rainbow Serpent to any manner of sea snakes and azure dragons and even the Loch Ness Monster. Water beings in cultures around the world have driven the career of Oxford-based anthropologist Veronica Strang, who finds them and their lore a powerful way to understand human relationships with the Earth, as well as possibly suggesting a strategy for their future. Culture File visited Professor Strang at her home in Osney Island on the edge of waterlogged Oxford, where we talked about, among other things, two-headed snakes, the meaning of irrigation, and a new old way of thinking about humans in their home. My name's Veronica Strang, and I'm a cultural anthropologist whose research focuses primarily on human relationships with water. For many decades I have been researching water issues from a variety of perspectives, from the sort of crunchy political conflicts over water, legal conflicts, management issues, but also the more esoteric ideas that people have and their beliefs in, in, in water beings and how they imagine their relationships with water. If you look at early human societies, they worshipped nature, so they worshipped the elements, light, water, the earth, and so forth. And in consequence, they all had important water beings or water divinities, if you like. And I'm not sure I would describe this so much as a religion, as a way of understanding the power of water. So what you get are these wonderful serpentine beings that not only manifest the properties of water in themselves, so they're fluid, snaky, and they they bear the colours of water, they're hybrid in that they um, contain elements of all the beings that they generate, and they also just manifest the power of water to, to generate life in a cyclical way. So of course they're very crucial two societies. They bring the annual rains, whether this is for hunter-gatherers or crops, and they uh, make floods or droughts when they're displeased. So they also represent a very respectful relationship with nature in which people understood that it had its co-creative powers. And they they also had at that point much more sustainable lifestyles, very place-based, and so they worship local water beings. And these water beings represent the hydrological cycle. So you get your uh, springs and wells and fountains representing groundwaters, but also celestial beings with wings that represent wind and weather and have and create lightning and, and fire. And they represent the whole circle of the, of the, of the hydrological cycle. One of the things we need to realise is that early societies are every bit as clever as we are. They, you know, uh, they just understood the world in really different ways. And one of the things that really characterises hunter-gatherer societies is they're very observant. They observe every detail 
of their environments. And so their understandings of things like the hydrological cycle are based on a lot of close observation of all the tiny events that it occurs during the years. And in that sense, they're like modern physicists because they work entirely upon observation. And so they have a very sophisticated set of, of knowledge, ecological knowledge, about how water moves through the environment and what it does as it goes. So their water beings are equally sophisticated. They generate life, they manage all of the things that happen, and they also manage the law. They create a, a, a set of social laws. Because one of the things that you often find with um, water deities is that they are bringers of consciousness and wisdom because they're life creators. And so they're very important in terms of knowledge. So many of the water beings that I've studied also bring the law and consciousness and enlightenment. What is the jump there, though, between this careful observation of movements of water and of uh, cycles of growth and renewal and the need to personify it? What, what joins those two things together? Well, this, I think, comes back to how humans, human cognitive processes tend to personify aspects of the environment. So if you read the work of people like Andy Clark, who talk about extended mind, what you see is, is people throwing their imaginations out into the world and, and extending their minds out into the world. So most hunter-gatherers would have inhabited sentient landscapes full of ancestral beings who were always omnipresent, watching, guiding, punishing if necessary, applying the law, and so forth. And so what you have is a, is a vision of collective mind that is extended into the landscape and the waterscape, and it makes it conscious and reactive, and it also acknowledges it as a partner in human lives. So you've got a sort of wonderful way of, of that extension recognising the co-creativity and no division between culture and nature. This comes much later, historically. So you have a very uh, symbiotic vision of humans and other kinds inhabiting a shared world in which other things also have power. Of course, when humans become more instrumental and start to control the material world more. That, that, is how, that is when you see the relationship start to change because you get no more inequality. And then as that inequality emerges, you get changes in, in the belief systems in which water is this all-powerful serpent being into uh, a more kind of push towards human empowerment. And that's why you get over time the humanization of many of these deities. So they, they suddenly acquire, well not suddenly, but processually acquire human torsos and heads and then they get humanised entirely or they're superseded by human deities who take over the job of providing water and punishing with floods and droughts and bringing the law and providing social authority. So if you like, they get d disempowered as humans acquire more material power. And then you can see through examining these water beings this fascinating pattern of humanization in religious forms, which goes through 
pantheons of human and semi-human gods to human gods that then also move out of the local environment into places like Olympus. And then, of course, you've got the move into the big monotheisms or the major religions in which entirely human gods take charge and then it becomes the whole patriarchal supreme father god and the notion of dominion over nature, which of course is very much um, entangled with our current environmental issues because we're busily trying to control everything materially and, and at the expense of it of its the stability of ecosystems and so forth so so in a sense this study is as much about changing relationships between humans and, and water as it is about the water deities themselves they're just they're like a narrative device that shows us how those changes occur and why they occur and why we are now where we are in an environmental crisis. The other important thing about water beings is that they tend to represent both genders. They're either androgynous, containing both genders in themselves, and very often they appear as twins, uh, which is another way, or, they have, or they're bicephalous. And, and so they, they tend to be um, male and female or have, old, I mean, for example, you have mother and father rainbows in Australia and Africa. Uh, they tend sometimes to be the female aspect with a male sun god. So you would find that in South America, for example, uh, where you also have wonderful twin anaconda, giant anaconda beings. Um, but the point is really that this is also about changing gender relations and inequalities. So if you start off with hunter-gatherer societies, what you have are uh, political systems that are really quite flat. And this is a Durkheimian perspective. If you assume that your religious belief system echoes your political system, a, 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 a gerontocratic system in which elders all rule the community together, male and female alike, is very egalitarian in principle, maybe not entirely in practice. Um, and so what you also see is a divergence in that power so that you get class systems and you get a rise in male authority. And, and so what you also see with the changing form of water beings is that instead of being dual or multiple genders, you get a rising assertion of male divinities. So you can see this very clearly in the Greek pantheons, that there's a sort of emergence and the women tend to become, you know, demonised. So you get Medea, Medusa, all these wicked, powerful women who can turn people to stone and so forth. So your male culture hero is someone like St George, St Michael, who slays the dragon. Uh, and that's a sort of classic male culture hero story. But you see it permeating popular culture in Lord of the Rings, if you like, in, in Avatar. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very sort of classic figure, as is, as is the evil witch and the overly powerful female figure. Uh, and of course, you do have your female heroes as well, but they're an alternative. I was thinking also the way that the culture heroes sometimes are the engineers in this in this particular process. So you have you know Archimedes on on one side, but you the the, the you know you the yeah yeah. You the Great is one of those figures that moves from sort of being a legendary figure into a historic figure, and he becomes a culture hero by controlling the waters of China. And he's, you know, he symbolises that sort of appreciation of engineering, which is interesting. Um, I mean, I think I think it's important to understand that 
controlling water is very seductive. It's very alluring to have control over this powerful element. Enchanting, you say. Yeah, it's very enchanting. And this, of course, is Alfred Gell's concept. He talks about the enchantment of technology. And if you look at how people talk about big dams, it's very ambivalent. You know, there's a lot of critique of how they impede systems and so forth. But there's all the people who build them love them. I mean, they've captured all this water. They've built this amazing thing and you can see why they're proud of it. Yu the Great basically controlled the major rivers of China and he introduced the notion of, of, of sort of dams and water control which then permeated the imperial dynasties completely. I mean, the, the whole, there's a wonderful book by Carl Wittfogel uh, called uh, Oriental Despotism and it's, it's controversial because the Sinologists tend to think he didn't really get Chinese culture. But the thing that he made very clear was the relationship between the material capacity to control water and the capacity to have political power. And that runs through every water story. The, the people who control the water basically get to be in charge, which raises some really interesting questions about the fact that our government has sold our water to foreign corporations. And it raises a question about democracy. How can you have authority in a democracy? How can a government act if it doesn't actually control the basic resources on which we rely. So some really very important questions about who controls water. And the, one of the biggest problems we have in this country is that it's multinationals who are not accountable here. They don't care how much sewage goes into our rivers or how many species die off in, in river catchments. So I, I think that question about the control of water and power is really very, very central. And that's what you, the great, epitomised. And, and then Imperial China with its magnificent canals basically drew all the diverse cultures in China together by controlling the water. How do we get the interests of non-human beings represented in decision-making processes? It's actually a very practical question. You know, we need to think about some kind of pan-species democracy that means that when we decide about transport or roads or housing or whatever developments, someone in that equation has the knowledge to say and this is what it would mean for the different species in this catchment area and this is what their needs and interests are and that's the voice that is missing in our in our decision making so i've proposed this notion of reimagined communities in which instead of just thinking about the human communities in a given area we encompass the notion that there are many many non-human communities and we think about ways to represent their needs not just in environmental things, because that always gets sidelined, but in the real decision-making fora where we make decisions about housing and transport and economic practices. So if we had a systematic way of representing non-human beings across our decision-making processes, they'd at least have a chance of having their needs and interests considered. One of the core ideas that the the water beings are involved with, you know, which we've touched upon a little bit there, is the notion that we've begun to see the environment as a resource and we're talking about using all all the parts of it to make buildings or roads or whatever. And and what you're suggesting is that there is a way of undoing our habit of seeing it as a resource. But the religion of capitalism sort of forbids that in a way, doesn't it? 
Well, those things are very intertwined. I mean, religious beliefs about dominion and capitalism sort of come hand in hand in terms of promoting that way of thinking. And even the word resource has a lot of baggage attached to it because it automatically frames things as assets and cost effective. You know, that is that whole language of capitalism is all about um, value for money and how to value things in monetary terms. And it's a very narrow way of thinking that, that pushes us into decisions that are wholly exploitative and short-termist. And so I think questioning that kind of short-termism and the language that we're using is, is a useful place to start. So it sounds a little esoteric to say, well, how do we have pan-species democracy represent non-human rights and interests? But what it's shifting us towards, you know, it's a paradigmatic change in thinking that goes, well, actually, this is a world of sh a shared world of living species of which we are clearly the most able to manipulate it. But actually, we need to think of it as a, sh as a single shared world. I was talking there to Veronica Strang, author of Water Beings from Nature Worship to the Environmental Crisis, which is published by Reaction Books. And next, what are the places into which large language models shouldn't creep? Or are there any places chat GTP shouldn't get? Jennifer Walsh has some ideas in her latest Things No Things. Christmas is over, the grand stretch has begun, and we find ourselves in the third year of the chat GPT era. Since its introduction in November 2022, OpenAI's large language model has been used for a wide array of tasks. Students have used it to write essays. Lawyers have used it to draft largely inaccurate but entirely persuasive-sounding legal arguments. And this Christmas, apparently children used it to draft letters to Santa. The use case which sticks most in my mind, though, from the last year is ChatGPT's increasing involvement in weddings. Much of this is simply AI-powered wedding planning. Couples have been using ChatGPT to generate wedding themes and colour schemes, to draft wedding budgets and venue lists, to book hotel rooms and manage invitations. More remarkable, though, is the fact that many brides and grooms have been using ChatGPT to write wedding vows, wedding speeches and love letters to their would-be spouses. I understand that this may strike some as ethically dodgy. The idea that a bride or groom would use AI to help them write one of the most heartfelt, earnest speeches they're going to make in their lifetime is grounds for divorce for many. But... I have a feeling that over the coming years, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this and that it won't be considered cheating, but a form of care. Why do I think this? Because coming up with text you will read aloud during a public ceremony is difficult and stressful for many people. It always has been and it always will be. And the fact that people might use AI to help them do this should be a surprise to no one. Some years ago, a friend of mine was getting married. She phoned me up 48 hours before the wedding and asked if I could do the happy couple a favour. Could I read a poem during the ceremony? Sure, I said. I'd be honoured to. Great, she said. 
pick whatever you like. I'm sure you'll come up with something really beautiful and special. I spent the next day and a half in a total panic, tearing through every poetry book I had. Beckett, Plath, Ginsberg, none of it in any way suitable for weddings. By sheer luck, the night before the wedding, I had to bring a family member to A&E. As we sat in the waiting room, the film Patch Adams was playing on the TV. Patch Adams stars Robin Williams as a doctor who dresses as a clown and believes in the healing power of comedy. It's based on a true story. In the film, Williams recites a sonnet by Pablo Neruda to the woman he loves. I think enough time has now passed that I can admit that the poem I read out the next day at my friend's wedding was the sonnet that Robin Williams recites in Patch Adams. And it went over fantastically. The bride and groom were thrilled that I had picked something which they felt reflected their love. I was applauded for my sophisticated literary taste. Everybody was happy. And so I just smiled and didn't mention that it was a poem I had jotted down on the back of a leaflet about solvent abuse while watching a Robin Williams film in the A&E waiting room. Was I wrong to do this? Should I have instead spent every one of those 48 hours before the wedding desperately looking for the perfect poem? I have no regrets. The end result was heartfelt, no matter how I got there. Striking the right tone, saying the right thing is difficult. We consult greeting card websites to advise us how to draft messages to bereaved colleagues. We read etiquette guides to learn how to write thank you notes, toasts and eulogies. Using AI to draft wedding vows is nothing new. It's simply the latest version of that guidance. I don't view it as cheating. What matters most is that we want to say something beautiful, that we want the people who will hear it to be happy and that we're willing to use anything at our disposal to make that happen. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things, previous editions of which you can find on all the podcast places, as well as on the Culture File pages on the Lyrics site. Ban Bam is a programme and event that aims to add some juice for women and gender minority artists in jazz and improv music. Ban Bam's latest project is a series of commissions which will get their debut over the weekend in Belfast and Dublin from composers Bianca Gannon, Carol Nelson and our guest now, Milena Gillard. Milena Gillard, who is also a tenor saxophonist and vocalist, has written a new work for the RGB trio in which she regularly makes music with Dave Redmond and Kevin Brady. Chasing Comets is a four-movement suite with a cosmic gamer theme. Gillard, who was born in London and brought up in the U, is now based in Derry, from where she spoke to Culture Files Angela O'Shaughnessy. You know, as a musician, overall, my sort of purpose is to inspire and remind people that they can vibrate like on a higher frequency. Just uh, reconnect everyone with the, their humanity and their curious selves. <laughs> So that's like the more philosophical side of what I do. But but yeah, I'm really just a curious nerd. That's what it is. (laughs) 
It wasn't until I started to join different ensembles and things that I started to realize, oh, I'm kind of the only woman here. When I came into playing, it never really occurred to me that it was weird. And I just kind of was like, I'm going to do this thing. I want to do it. I know there's a big gender disparity in, in the arts and, and visibility and gatekeeping and all these major issues that go with, you know, the, the business side of the, the art form. But uh, when it comes to the energies, it, they're just energies. I was really fortunate in Ohio to come up around a lot of great jazz musicians that were really rooted in blues and soul and gospel music. So it was all black American music. There are like gems of musicians around that really have connected with like, you know, the black American music culture. And I'm lucky to make music with them. But it's also nice to make music with someone who's come from something different and just as an experiment to see like what we get, you know. There's a lot of really incredible musicians here. There really are. I, I really enjoy Irish music. I'm really enamored by the, ta the talent and rhythmic skill of those musicians and also the parallels between those rhythms and like Afro-Cuban rhythms. Bembe rhythms are so like similar to, you know, like Irish jigs and stuff. I'm really there for all of it. Yeah, I'm really kind of like tuned into people's energies and I like to look people in the eye, especially like when I'm singing too, because I like to connect with people on that level. Like I like to have that vulnerability. Like I can tell if someone's like with me or not. And when I can, when I feel that, like I get, it gives me permission to give more and then they give more. And it's like this back and forth, you know? You know, I like people to dance too and to not feel so like academic, you know, it's like, no, move your body a little bit, even if you're sitting down, you know, like it's, I invite you to be a part of this. As artists, we can be self-torturing, self-sabotaging sometimes. There's always like an imposter syndrome. Um, I spend a lot of time trying to quiet those energies and thoughts away from my, my creative mind because those kind of things can, can be destructive. And at this stage of my life, I'm very much willing to sound awful in the pursuit of something new. I have an ego death for it. I don't care at, at the creation stage. I have to be willing to try things that might be ugly or might not sound pretty and might not be, you know, refined. I would rather go down like trying something and really being awful at it at first and then honing it and becoming great at it than having not tried. I have observation mode on all the time. Creativity doesn't stop. There's creative fodder everywhere, just there for us to take. Live Music Now, they're just such a great organization. The main goal is for everyone to have a connection and have a good time. And for some people, they can respond to music and they can participate in music. And others, their participation is different, you know. They might, they'll be there and they'll, they're participating in their own way and they're absorbing it in their own way. Getting that reaction and that connection from like a child for the first time or you know, for someone who's like in the dementia ward, who's just kind of been still, and then you might play a song that takes them back and they're all of a sudden they're clapping and singing with you. It's like the best feeling in the world because the music is so medicinal in that way.
like I said, Joyology. That's the name of the duo that I do with the in the care homes with my friend John. And we're that's what we're trying to do is just try to bring joy to people. The goal is just to keep playing with musicians that inspire me, and there's so many. I want to just definitely shout out, thank We Beyond Music and IMC, Improvised Music Company, for this opportunity to compose new music for Bam Bam. Bianca and Carol, I'm really excited to hear their pieces. And my piece, I've totally just had fun like with this. My trio traditionally is a very acoustic sound with a upright bass, saxophone, and drums, a very open sound very you know earthy we've gone electric now with electric bass and i'm playing through a bunch of effects and i've written a suite of music that's kind of inspired by space themes and also my love of like 80s 90s video games I used to play a lot of sega and nintendo so i'm having a good time <laughs> it's gonna be fun after this uh, premiere. I'm going to be writing some quartet music doing Bray Jazz Festival. I am working on a, well, it will either be an EP or an album of my own original vocal music, which is very much like R&B and funk and soul. And I'm also getting married next month. So. <laughs>